Hello, welcome to Golden Grenades episode 8. My name is Kit, aka Yolo Birder off Twitter. A birder who loves all birds, but some just a tad more than others. Particularly the awesome and deadly peregrine falcon, the clenched, plunging fists of which give this podcast its name. Regular listeners will know by now that this podcast is based on the fairly likely impending scenario of an environmental apocalypse. And a special guest joins me each week to tell me about the five bird species that they would save above all others to survive with them and keep them company in the aftermath of this catastrophic event. Then they must choose one of these five species to go head to head in an epic battle with my peregrine falcon. This week, my special guest is Lucy McRobert. Lucy is a wildlife storyteller and author of 365 Days Wild, a book based on the project 30 Days Wild that she set up whilst working for the Wildlife Trusts. She's a freelance communications and marketing professional, a birder and naturalist. She currently has two or three more books in the pipeline and not so long ago took her seven-day-old daughter to see a beluga whale in the Thames. Talk about starting them young. Lucy, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. How are hello. you? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm surviving, you know, <laughs> lockdown and all that. Maybe there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Fingers um, crossed. Yeah, let's hope so. I must ask you about 30 Days Wild, which has been a massive success. How did the idea come about? So my career started really with the Wildlife Trusts in their central office. I was initially employed to run their My Wildlife campaign. And part of that was that we wanted to run an ongoing engagement campaign, think October, um, November, that sort of thing, but that was to do with wildlife. And we had no idea really what we were doing or how it was going to work. But we had this great idea uh, that we wanted to just get more people connected to nature. And it was all about getting people who weren't the usual suspects. That was really important to us. We did not want people who were already into nature, who were already birders, who were already wildlife enthusiasts. We really wanted to tap into new audiences. But we got together a working group and we came up with this idea of sending people a pack and picking the month of June. June was very simply a process of elimination. Uh, so 31 days wild sounds awful. So that was every month with 31 days in it out. Uh, 28 days wild would be depressing because that's February. Snowdrops and that's it. We w went down to 30 days wild and ended up picking June because it's just this magical, marvellous month where things are just coming alive and birdsong and foraging. And there's just this multi-sensory experience of nature in June that's so lovely. And we wanted to capture that. And we really wanted it to be about urban wildlife as well. There is an element of the countryside in it, but we're, we're really trying to tap into that uh, suburban, urbanite group of people, which makes up the majority of people in the country who might not appreciate nature on their doorsteps. Hilariously, we got everything printed and we only had about two and a half thousand packs. And we didn't think through the fulfillment. We didn't think how this was actually going to work. And then we suddenly realized we had to put the packs together and post them out. So we ended up with this big production line, essentially, in one of our meeting rooms, coercing people from HR, coercing people from IT and finance to put all these packs together. And it was one of the best moments I've ever had in my career, actually, just because this amazing group of people I used to work with came together to deliver this campaign. And it was just it was it was great. We had 11,000 people, I think, sign up. We posted out these two and a half thousand packs and the first year went reasonably well. We were pretty happy with it. The next year and the next year and the next year, it just kept doubling. 
and it just snowballed and it grew and it was just so exciting to watch all these different people taking part and it was really it was really cool because we like looked at their ethnicities and we found out that we were actually having quite a high rate of people from VME backgrounds taking part the really exciting part of it as well was all to do with people's health and well-being and we wanted to track from the start the impact that the campaign would have on people's health and well-being so we worked with the University of Derby, a chap called Miles Richardson, who just does the most amazing research into this area. And we tracked people's happiness. We tracked their connection to nature. We tracked how they perceived their own health at the beginning of June when they'd completed the campaign and two months after. And we just had these great results that showed that if you did something wild every day for 30 days, you did feel happier, you did feel healthier, and you did have a marked increase in your connection to nature. And that didn't just last for the month of June. It lasted for two months after, at least. And that was the premise of the campaign. That's what everything was built upon. And it's now going, I think it's in like its seventh year now or something next year. And that's just so exciting to know that this campaign is still reaching literally hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of families are taking part. And it just came from this really humble origins in a meeting room in Newark in Nottinghamshire. Yeah, it's a brilliant idea. It's the simple ideas that are the best often, isn't it? It became a book as well, didn't it? It did. About four years in, loads of people were saying to us, we wish this campaign ran all year round. Uh, we wish this campaign had a winter version. Uh, we still want inspiration. And we had this Facebook group with about 10,000 people on it at the time. It now has something like 20 or 30,000 people on it. And they wanted content. They were desperate for ideas. People were, were drinking up this idea of doing something wild every day. And so we needed things that were more seasonally specific. I came up with the idea of turning it into a book and the Wildlife Trust were really supportive. It was really exciting, actually, because I got to work with loads of people across the movement to pull together all of these ideas in one big book that was published by William Collins a couple of years ago. And the reception to that has been amazing. Uh, the People's Postcode Lottery bought thousands of copies and sent them out to people who won the People's Postcode Lottery one month. And although it's my book and it's my writing, I always think that it's the product of something much bigger. It's lots of people's ideas. It's inspiring stories that I've come across from all around the country. It's some slightly crazy content in there about bizarre experiences that I've had connecting with nature, including like weeing on natterjack toads and things. So there's a real mix of things and there's some lovely stuff to do with wild words and learning wild words and going eco-friendly. So it's a real beginner's guide to wildlife. It, it, down to earth, that's the comment that always comes back. This is entry level nature and people seem to love it. There's alcohol in there. They have a recipe for blackberry vodka. So there really is something for everybody. Yeah, I mean, alcohol and wean on toads, I mean, what's not to like? I've been a, a big fan of 30 Days Wild since the start. And on Twitter, I've posted some of the things that I've done, such as hedgehog toe puree, making a wry neck out of Weetabix, rock pooling with anthrax, tadpole ringing, otter rubbing, earwig circus, grieving, swimming with newts and a dipper disco. But my paddling pool crab museum was a bit of a disaster, unfortunately, so I, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I also mentioned in the intro there that you took your seven-day-old daughter to see a beluga whale in the Thames, and so she had beluga whale on her UK life list at the age of seven days old. You certainly started her early, didn't you? The slight confession here is that, first of all, we didn't realise this at the time, but they can only see about 12 inches in front of their faces at that point. Mm -hmm. And she did sleep most of the time. 
but we'd had family around us the whole time and we hadn't really got outdoors it, it when you've just had a baby it's a very full-on time because you're adjusting as a person you're adjusting as a couple and everything is new and crazy and this beluga whale was down in the Thames and we love cetaceans like I talk about birds a lot but in reality my heart is with the dolphins and I really really wanted to go and see this and we couldn't see how we were going to make this work around midwife meetings and family coming around and friends coming around but we essentially just went for it and I think at that point the midwives just wrote us off because the biggest concern that they have is mothers becoming very isolated uh, mothers not going outside, not exercising, not talking to other people. So when we told them this, they they kind of just put a big red cross next to our names, and we were out. That that was it. We no interest in us anymore after that. It didn't help that then three weeks later we went to Silly for five weeks, <laughs> and she was out on boats again, and she was walking around the islands and having her feet dipped in the sea. But we always wanted her to grow up with these slightly crazy experiences. We don't want her to grow up thinking nature is unattainable and inaccessible. It's really important for us that she has this as part of her day-to-day life. And if that means that we drive to Kent to see a beluga whale, then that's what we do. We make it work. You make it work safely and you find a way to make all of you happy and make sure all of you are comfortable. But you still give children those experiences. And the earlier you start, the better, even if they have no idea what's going on. That's fine. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, particularly my, my son, when he was younger, he's got black stork and he's got, you know, squacko heron and stuff. He'll just think that all he's got is a packet of Cadbury's buttons um, to make sure that he kept quiet while I was looking at the, the rare bird. But uh, yeah, he's got quite a good list that he's been dragged to see. <laughs> I do think watching wildlife with kids is a mixture of excitement, bribery, blackmail and hot chocolate. Yeah. I'd say if you're if you're willing to go down that route, I don't think you can be too proud about these things. We've all slipped the kids a packet of Haribo whilst you're trying to watch something. That's okay. There's no judgment here. No, no. And I, and I think it's any port in a storm, isn't it? You just have to roll with it and give them an apple later and that cancels it out, doesn't it? So it's fine. Absolutely, yeah. Brilliant. So you're on Golden Grenades, this ridiculous <laughs> format of a podcast that I've come up with. And you're going to talk to us today about your five favourite birds, or, or, well, maybe not necessarily your five favourites, but certainly five birds that are close to your heart for one reason or another. So tell us about your bird number one. Bird number one. So my bird number one, and I did put a lot of thought into this, actually. I, I, I went through and I thought about my five favourite birds. Then I thought, well, I could tell you about swifts, which everyone else is doing, um, which are legitimately my favourite bird, but that's a sideline. Or I can try and find birds that actually have amazing stories for me. And I think that's really important when you're thinking about your own connection with wildlife is don't just try and say what everyone else wants to say. Think about the story behind that bird that's personal to you. And that could be a bird in your back garden or it could be a bird that you travelled 100 miles to see. And so the first bird I want to talk about um, is the green shank. Now, my confession here is I don't really like green shanks that much. But following on from what I've just said, there's a reason why I picked it. And it's that when you're talking to people about your favourite birds, you realise that you tailor your answers depending on the audience. So if I'm talking to a non-birder about my favourite birds, it is completely acceptable to say things like hoopoos, 
bee eaters. Uh, you, you can say these kind of really sexy species if you're talking to a non-birder because they're like, wow, look at the plumage. Oh, my goodness. They're so beautiful. They sound amazing. Like, yeah, they are. They're really cool. You say that to a birder. That's like saying you fancy Kim Kardashian. <laughs> they are ostentatious. They are basically plastic surgery. You, you don't want to say that to a birder. So you have to strategically pick birds that you know birders are going to approve of and they're all going to go oh yeah yeah that's a good bird so for example you're, you're never going to pick a pipit are you pipits are just kind of dull really they confuse me a little bit i always see them in the autumn i've been red-throated pipit completely acceptable you can do the same for things like corvids everyone will go oh corvid until you mention chuff and then they go oh that that's allowed ducks no one wants to confess that they like ducks because ducks are considered easy to identify. However, you can say gargany. And you can go through different groups of birds and identify the bird that is socially acceptable within that group for birders to say that they like. And I think if you narrow it down by process of elimination, the bird that you will always find is totally acceptable to say you like is the green shank because it is understated. It sounds cool when they fly. They just sound amazing. They are symbolic of places for different people. And I always just see birders getting really excited about green shank. So it's a kind of safety net. If anyone asks you, what's your favourite bird? Just say green shank. It's common enough that it's acceptable. You can't say Siberian ruby throat. That's just like, ew, what? No, you're not allowed to say that. You can't say something that's ridiculously rare. That's ludicrous. But green shank is a good level to pitch at if you are talking to birders. It's a safe place to be. So that is why I've chosen that as my first bird. It is my safe bird. It's an excellent explanation. But I would say that that is pandering to the snobbery in birders, though, isn't it? To a certain extent that, that, oh, yes. we, that we all have. And I, I'm guilty of it as well. I, I People love goldfinch or, or, you know, something else that I just think is, I call them gaudy finches because I just like, you know. <laughs> Where's, where's a brambling? Give me a brambling. I don't want to look at a goldfinch. But, you know, I, I think there is that sort of snobbery. But I have no problem with liking a, a hoopoe. In fact, I even pronounce it wrong to all the other birders out there because I say hoopoe because I learned it when I was a kid from a book. And how could a bird... You also say book, though, so... <laughs> Touché. Um, so, yeah, so I would... If anybody said, no, that's, that's ridiculous, and then laughed at me down the sleeve of their fleece then I would just I'd fight them you know I'd, oh hoopoes are brilliant shut up but I know I do know what you mean and, and I think that the birds that I gravitate to are maybe the more understated and I don't know if that's snobbery or that's just because you're more likely to see them but green shacks are lovely birds it is a treat when you see one because you don't see them commonly enough to to just take them as sort of common you know but you see exactly them. you know that you will see them but it's always exciting when you do, especially if you're like a year lister or something. It's a, it's a good, solid bird to have on your year list. It's a good, solid bird to see. And like you say, it's not common enough that you're going to see it every day. Definitely. And and they are lovely looking birds. I mean, they're sleek, they're pointy at the front, they're pointy at the back. They're, they're, you know, they've got lovely markings. So, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I've got no beef with that. I think they're a, they are a good bird. So moving on, let's talk about your your second choice. Bird number two. So next, I am going to go in with a desperately irritating bird for most people. And 
this one's a little bit of one uppery. I'm sorry in advance. Go for it. My second bird is Zeno's petrel. Oh. <laughs> and it's because I am one of only 12 people in the UK that has seen one in the UK. And I'm a little bit smug about that, frankly. I know that I nearly injured my daughter in doing so. It was a little bit chaotic. So we were out on a pelagic with the god that is Bob Flood with his 850 pelagics under his belt and the king of seabirds. The guy would wear a crown when he's out on pelagics. He's just got great instincts, great eyesight. Goodness me, he can shout. So everyone's kind of winding down. The sun's starting to set. It's a lovely atmosphere. Everyone's chatting. And we've had an amazing couple of days where we've been surrounded by Corys and greats and loads of Wilson's petrels. So it's already been really quite cracking. Everyone's just chilling out and chatting by this point because we're steaming back in. And Bob is still on it, laser focused. You cannot distract that man when he's out birding. And he suddenly screamed, Bayer's petrel! And it made us jump, frankly. It was that loud. And all of us were scrambling around. I was holding Georgie at the time, my little girl. And she was quite sleepy at this point. It was 8.30 at night. I was trying to manoeuvre her, getting pushed out the way by other people who were trying to grab cameras and things. There's various fishermen in the way um, who have been out shark tagging. And it was just absolute chaos. The bird was only with us for about 40 seconds. Bob got on it absolutely beautifully. And people like grabbing each other's cameras firing off at this bird and you could just see bob getting more and more excited because it's fair as petrol i think there's been like six sightings over the past few years from sapphire so it's not it's not something that they're going to completely go mental for but you could see bob was just so excited and getting more and more worked up at the views he was getting of this bird and it's because fingers crossed pending acceptance it was a xenos petrol and this has never been confirmed in the uk before there's been probable sightings, but it's never been confirmed. So this was just the most exciting thing to be a part of. What actually happened, though, was one of the fishermen decided to slow the boat down at that point, just as we hit a wave. And I was stepping back into the cabin and I was holding Georgie and accidentally bumped her head on the door. It was a horrible moment when you think that you've injured your child. And I was just going, oh, my God, not for a bird, not for a bird. Oh, I've hurt her. And it's, it's about a bird. This is awful. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. I'm never holding binoculars ever again. She was actually fine. She cried for like 30 seconds, I think, because it made her jump more than anything. But I was just a state for the rest of the trip. I was like in tears of guilt the whole way through while everyone else was really excited. <laughs> and it's taken me, I think, a good three or four months to be able to come to terms with the fact that this was an amazing experience to be part of. And she survived. At the time, I, w- I just hated it. I was so upset and so angry. And my husband's off down the back of the boat doing cartwheels because this is like birding history. And he's always wanted to see a first for Britain. And so he was just losing it, not realising <laughs> that I was in the cabin, like sobbing. And she's looking at me like, what's wrong with you? The small bump on the head. I'm fine. <laughs> Seabirds are so cool. Seabirds are like wind. They, they just glide and ride. They're not like animals that they actually are like elemental and i get so excited about seabirds yeah a lot of people do get excited about seabirds for the for those kind of reasons i think i hope it gets accepted for the sake of georgie's noggin and and you <laughs> coming to terms with that so yeah the other thing is it's legitimately rare as well it's not like it's rare in the uk this is a bird that is seriously threatened it, it lives in like two colonies people go on pilgrimages to kind of go and see this and to think that it's just kind of glided past our boat 
at that exact moment where someone happens to be looking. That is what I love about birding. It's so serendipitous and you can just chance in on these amazing experiences where you just go from zero to hero in a split second. And luckily it did a, a swing past the, bot- the, the stern of the boat for a few seconds before it kind of headed off back into the wake of the boat. But that coming together of circumstances is just so unlikely. And yet it happened. I mean, more than anything, I'm just delighted for Bob, because for him, I think this is like a career moment that he's just played out in his head over and over and over again. And to share that with such an expert and someone who is so passionate is just really exciting. Fantastic. And I'm well, Jill. It sounds like it was an amazing (laughs) day. So let's move on. Tell us about your third bird. And I'm expecting this to be equally as jealousy inducing. Bird number three. Three, three. My third bird, which is a cracker, to be honest. Again, you'll notice there's a theme with these and the theme tends to be silly and slightly gripping and mental. And again, it's that serendipitous coming together of moments, if you like. So my third bird is belted kingfisher, which was probably one of the best days of my birding life. It was a ludicrous day. Uh, in April 2018, I was about mm, four months pregnant and it was just, it was a really calm, quiet day. It was sunny, it was warm. No one was really expecting anything. And the phone beeped and we both just kind of looked down at Red Bird Alert and, hmm, Belted Kingfisher. Um, how, what? No. And you're kind of looking at the WhatsApp groups and no one on the WhatsApp group saying anything. You're wondering why the phone's not ringing and you keep rereading it going, well, is this correct? Like, where, who is this? Where has this come from? Like, what's going on? Trying to suddenly ring around and saying, is anyone else registered what this is? And no one had. Everyone had kind of just glanced at it and gone, oh, and, and hadn't known how to process it. So it led to this absolutely insane day of kind of tearing around in a Land Rover. And this bird would not sit still. So one person was sitting in the hide, uh, an area called Portelic. And they could hear what it turned out was a belted kingfisher. But I think they thought the door was creaking because they have this insane call that sounds a bit like one of those football clackers that was very big in the South African World Cup, I think. And they didn't really twig what it was. No, what they, they just the door was creaking as far as they were concerned. Luckily, someone else saw this enormous kingfisher lying across Portelic's pool. And it was Ash Fisher, very good birder. And I think he just lost it at that point because he was the only person who had actually seen it. And that is an awful scenario for a birder to be in. If you've not got a photo and you're the only person who's seen it, that that's not why most of us are in it. Most of us are in it because we want to share these birds. We want to share these experiences. And also for credibility, you want to know that someone else has got on these animals and you're not imagining it. <laughs> so it was just chaos again for the whole day, running backwards and forwards at Porthelic Path. And we were running along. I'm pregnant and overtaking all of these blokes. You're pregnant. Stop running. I was like, no, this is too much fun. And the bird disappeared again. Still no sign. We were climbing over rocks. We were jumping in rock pools. We were trying to follow this bird. Luckily, the tide was out. The bird sighted again, but it's all these single observer sightings. And this bird was just going round and round the island from watercourse to watercourse different pools I think at one point it was over the duck pond which is just insane and eventually it got pinned down back at the original spot where it was photographed and we were 
tearing along, jumped out in front of a Land Rover and hitched a lift. But rather than stopping at the entrance to the nature reserve, we literally went off road to get to the bird. I'm crouched in the back of a Land Rover, again, four months pregnant, and we are off-roading. I think if I'd been eight months pregnant, I would have gone into labour. It was not comfortable. There's me and about five blokes crammed in the back, and a dog, and all of our equipment and kit. Got to the bird, fell out of the back door, and we were on it for what must have been five minutes. And it was just really, really exciting to be part of it. And the bird was seen once more after that, and gone. Oh, wow. And it's just, again, it's that chaos. It's the the way in which we end up seeing these things and how exciting it is. The process you go through to get that bird is just so exciting. And then when it's a belted kingfisher, which is sexy as hell anyway, it's marvellous. It's why we do what we do. People think that we're all standing around staring at bushes and what are we doing? And isn't it boring and cold? And why do you do this? Do you all just sit there in hides all day, kind of scratching your heads and staring at geese? No, we have these amazing, crazy, exciting experiences that you would not get if you weren't a birder because nature is fundamentally exciting. And then when you bring rarity into it, you really can get into it. And I always say that to people who are not into birds. I mean, I've lost friends when I became a birder because they could not understand why a 21-year-old girl who likes makeup and hair and boys and going out clubbing would possibly want to spend her days wandering around the nature reserve or going on holiday to the Isles of Scilly with a bunch of 50 to 60 year old blokes they could not understand that but you do not have these experiences hanging around in city centres going shopping this is real life and it's exciting definitely and when you chuck into the mix the fact that not only was this a mega rare bird but also it's a sexy they're they're blooming gorgeous. They're crazy looking, you know, they've got, they're almost square. They've got these the big sort of like Mohican crest thing going on, that massive bill. And yeah, they're, they're great looking birds. I've never seen one and I, I probably never will unless one rocks up in Northumberland, which I think is, is, is highly unlikely. I mean, they're so... I don't know. Well, you know, stranger things have happened. And, and they're one of those species as well, aren't they? Which is quite unusual where the female is more attractive than the male. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas often yeah. it's the male who's the show off and, and has to attract the mate. So they're always like, you know, the, the sort it's of... like phalaropes, redneck phalaropes have got it. They've got it the right way around. Yeah, yeah. So there's not many species that do that. So, yeah, no, you get extra cool points from that point of view as well. <laughs> and and the, they're so good looking. They're on the uh, Canadian five dollar bill. So there you go. Hey. Yeah, or, or, or certainly some five dollar bills in Canada. Oh. Kingfisher on it. So there, little fact for you. that's just cool it's one of those experiences that reminds you why you do what you do why you love this so much it is a coming together of moments and you to share it again that's the most important thing for me is sharing it with people who I who who I love frankly I feel like these people are my family and that's amazing I'm so happy for them when they find things and I'm so happy that they then get to share that experience with people and to me I Again, people always say to me, like, why do you like hanging out with birders? I'm like, because they are the most wonderful group of people. They come from all classes. The diversity is now really starting to come through in terms of race as well, which is only a good thing for this hobby. It's marvellous to see so young people coming into this um, hobby are so much more diverse than in previous generations. And it's exciting. And they all have 
these incredible stories that they bring to the mix. And when you start to hear these stories and listen to these stories and share experiences with these people, it's just marvelous. And it's the same with gender. I know so many more women now taking part in birding than I did five years ago. And again, it's exciting, it's, it's fun. And I love the relationships that I have within this birding community. Um, it makes me very proud to be part of the birding community. And then when you have something like a belted kingfisher to throw into the mix, it's just incredible. Absolutely. Great stuff. So tell me about your, your fourth bird. Bird number four. So my fourth bird, um, well, it depends what you want to call it, really. It started off as a rock bunting and it ended up as a god-awful bunting, actually a godlewski's bunting, which it turned out none of us had ever heard of. <laughs> so again, we're on silly. This was April, but my daughter was born, so it would have been 2019. And the mega went off on the pager and it said rock bunting on the garrison. I was meant to be going out for lunch with my mother-in-law and just threw Georgie in the pushchair and we just ran. And the garrison, it's not, I think it's only like a 42 metre high platform in reality. But when you do that hill at a run with a pushchair, oh, it's hard. So we're all tearing around like absolute idiots. And suddenly we get on this bird that, that's been called as a rock bunting. Um, again, by Ash, very good birder. And he's gone rock bunting, but we've only had kind of brief fleeting views. Very exciting. The more people here, the better, because we can properly get on this bird. And we managed to get it pinned down and it was kind of sitting on a wall and managed to get some photos of it. Then this conversation started, kind of people whispering, people who really know about birds. And I'm, I do not really know about birds. I am not an ornithologist. I am bad with memory. It's not the way my brain works. I like stories about birds and I like experiences. In terms of actual scientific birding, I'm terrible and I do not hold back about that. That's just me. And people started whispering almost about this Godlewski's bunting. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell is a Godlewski's bunting? Luckily, it turns out everyone is sitting there going, what the hell is a Godlewski's bunting? And they're all pretending to know whilst frantically trying to get signal to Google what a Godlewski's bunting is. But at the same time that this is going on, we've all shared photos on social media and none of us have noticed that it had a ring on it. So it went from being mega to being mega mega to being, well, this is awkward. <laughs> because it was people on social media casually pointing out that it had this very bizarre ring on its leg. It wasn't like a normal ring. It wasn't like the bird had been ringed, but it also didn't really look like a captive ring either. No one could recognise even the kind of ring that this was. And it turned out, so Godlewski's bunting is originally, I think, from the Kazakhstan area. And so we all started these brilliant theories about where this bird had come from. So my husband, Rob, was putting out this theory that there was a man named Oleg or something that was operating some dodgy ringing scheme out of Kazakhstan. And it had just lazily drifted here on the prevailing easterlies that we'd enjoyed for the past week. And that the bird was therefore tickable. Um, the second one, which was my preferred theory, was that this bunting had been dramatically captured whilst it was going out its business as part of the wild bird trade. And it had been taken to the Netherlands and sold into kind of captive slavery and had fought its way out pulling open the bars of its cage and flown to freedom and crash landed on the garrison 
Um, and then the third theory was that there's quite a lot of people on Silly who do actually keep captive birds and maybe one of them had accidentally got a God Lucy's bunting and it had escaped from the local collection of like Namaqua doves and zebra finches and things. I remember this, you know, on, on Twitter at the time and pointing out of the red leg ring and, you know, that it's got to be a captive bird and all of that. I, but, you know, it's got it's got a handlebar moustache and an eye stripe, which, you know, <laughs> is a good combo in anybody's book. But, you know, they're not stunners. You know, it's not one that no. you would keep. I don't know. So has it has it been resolved yet? I don't think it was ever submitted. I think we all just quietly got back in our box. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the worst thing was it was like my photo that was the first bit of bad evidence against oh, this really? bird. And I was like, oh, no. Um, and it, we all just kind of had to very quietly slink away with our tails between our legs. Awful thing that none of us had ever heard of. And we didn't want to see it anyway. Absolutely. I mean, for every Zeno's petrol, you've got to, you've got to counterbalance that with a, a Godlewski's bunting that's out of a cage. You know, Absolutely. You know, that's fine. You've got to take the rough with the smooth. <laughs> Unless anyone does know someone called Oleg who's running a dodgy ringing scheme out of Kazakhstan, in which case, get in touch. Yeah, it's back on. Yep. Brilliant. Right. So we're on to your 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 fifth bird, your final choice. What is it going to be? Bird number five. five, five. <laughs> it's a bird that will be my favourite bird one day. Right now, I hate it with a passion. Um, it's a rose-breasted grosbeak which, as many people will know, has become a slight sticking point, shall we say, in my birding career. So last autumn, not the autumn just gone, the one before, a rose-breasted grosbeak was found on St Martin's uh, by a chap called Chris, and it was all very exciting. So two or three boatloads of birders went over to St Martin's. Very exciting moment. And we're all kind of spread out up and down the islands. We've got to this quarry where the bird was seen. And of course, no sign. Because why would there be in many respects? Why is, why is nothing ever that simple? I had a couple of hours to spend on the bird and we were walking back towards the boat and it, suddenly someone had found it. So Rob had to go back to the boat. He was actually working. And I was like, sorry, I'm off. I'm going to try and see this bird. So I turned around, pushing a pushchair at this point with a child in it. And I sprinted back up to the crowds. And it turned out, again, only three or four people had seen it. And this mad, wacky races ensued. And you're not pushing kind of pushchairs along proper concrete paths. You're pushing them over gravel and farm tracks and through deep sand. And after three or four hours, I was just like, I give up. This is not fun. And it was actually meant to be my 400th bird. She's hating this. Like, Georgie's at this point getting really stressed out because what are we doing? I'm getting really stressed out and I'm hungry and sweaty and mad. So I bailed and I went and jumped on a boat um, to go out on a mini pelagic. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've just gone and see some dolphins instead. Incidentally, didn't see any dolphins, which was even more annoying. And then pretty much everyone ended up seeing it which was really frustrating but it didn't matter the bird looked pretty settled so we'll go back again the next day the next day we were running from spot to spot to spot again Georgie's getting really stressed you'd spent hours loitering around at one spot then it'd be found somewhere else it was on this massive circuit around half the island you could just not pin it down eventually it was found again at the quarry and I picked Georgie up and I ran I sprinted holding a one-year-old child and got to the quarry and I could see people were pointing and I knew where they were pointing and as I raised my bins a tractor 
pulled in front of my binoculars. I was like, what even? But they were still pointing. So I went to carry on running to get a view behind the tractor just as the farmer jumped out. And literally we saw this thing flick and it was gone. And that was a story repeated throughout that day. We just kept missing this bird by eight seconds. The next day we didn't bother going back. We're just like, no, it's not going to happen. The day after that, I broke again and we ended up going back. And that nearly led to divorce because my husband does not need this bird. Seen a couple. This isn't a big deal for him. And we ended up getting separated because he was gossiping as per. I was looking after Georgie and she literally just pooped. And it was a big poop. And it came on the radios. So... I threw her back in a pushchair with this horrible nappy and I just felt so terrible. Ran. Everyone else took a shortcut down a hill and me and my friend Vicky, we couldn't take a shortcut because we both had pushchairs. So we had to go the long way round and literally this bird flicked. Again, missed by about three or four seconds. And I remember walking down this line of birders holding Georgie under one arm and the nappy bag. And I literally threw the nappy bag in his face. And I was like, sort your daughter out. <laughs> and he went to kind of retaliate and be like don't you be rude to me in front of all these birders and someone actually put their hand on his shoulder and they're like no no just do what she says you go go do the daughter because you're not in the right here you ran off and left her <laughs> and it was just it was absolutely awful and we came back the next day and it was gone oh, and no. so like five days of my life no one would make eye contact with me after it. Everyone was just looking really awkward. I think I was one of about six people that didn't actually see it out of 250 or so people. And then there was one again this year reported and I wasted hours of my life on goo, freezing cold, trashed a pair of trainers, trying to get back through the sea. Um, on the plus side, though, that afternoon, the indigo bunting turned up. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I've not seen one either, but then I've not seen most of the birds you've chosen. I, I did ask Twitter for their opinions on a rose-breasted crossbeak, and I, I got a few good comments, so I was just going to read those out. Glorious, stripy, blackberry juice dribbling hard so-and-sos, although she didn't use the word so-and-so, with flashy, bright-coloured armpits, is how Steph Thorpe describes them. Uh -huh. Unpleasantly bitey, said Katie Fuller. <laughs> Don't put two in your undercrackers. I walk in a circle now, says David Darrell Lambert. And knowing him, I actually believe that. Yeah, um, I do too. <laughs> Nick Atchison says they were once described to him by a North American ringer as rhubarb-chested cuticle cleavers. He also says they have epic armpits and have a call like a sneaker striking a gym floor at an angle. So there you go. It does sound like a, a trainer hitting a gym floor at an angle. And this also led to a, a Twitter debate about what was worse, the bite of the grosbeak, the hawfinch, the Japanese hawfinch, or the long-tailed fiscal in Kenya. So I think a lot Ooh. of these people have experience of handling these birds and ringing them, and apparently they're, they're ridiculously nasty and, and hurt a lot. So you've pinned all of your hopes on this horribly bitey bird. So maybe you just need to go to North America and ring one. They hate me. I, I can't help it. I know they're beautiful. I like that they're bitey. I feel that that is a good angle right now. I feel reassured to know that other people have come a cropper to these things in a slightly more physical way than I did. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, going to have to come to the crunch now. You've, you've 
talked us through the five birds that you would choose to walk the barren post-apocalyptic landscape with a tasteful wader, a god-awful bunting, a bitey finch, a petrel that you'll probably never see again, and a pimped-up kingfisher. But which of these five incredible choices is the one bird to rule them all? The one that you have hand-selected to slug it out with my mighty peregrine in the Golden Grenade's gratuitous grapple of glory. Well, having gone on my rant earlier about how you can only say green, uh, green shank, but I'm actually now going to go back on that. Having told those stories and relived those moments, it's got to be belted kingfisher and I know they're gaudy and I know that they're sexy and I know that you're not supposed to say it because it's like saying that you fancy Kim Kardashian but I that is one of the best days of my life and that bird is the symbolism of everything that I love about birding so belted kingfisher right as I was saying earlier this podcast I came up with this format with this this battle with my peregrine at the end of the show and unfortunately, it does make it really hard for me as the judge and jury on this to to decide which bird is best, because some birds are better than others. And, and we're all in agreement of that. But everybody has their own reasons for why their favorite is the best. And I know your absolute favorite is probably the swift. You've got swift tattoos, but you've chosen Belted Kingfisher for different reasons based on experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that wonderful day. I still think a peregrine would have it in a fight. You know, <laughs> chance that it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to have to make a decision. Comes down to this: belted kingfisher versus the mighty peregrine falcon. And to be honest, listening to your stories and what hardships you've gone through, and what hardships your poor daughter Georgie has gone through for these birds as well. You know, I think that on this one occasion, don't let anybody know. I'm going to let you <laughs> say that. Belted Kingfisher is this week's winner of Golden. Brilliant. <laughs> it had to be. I mean, I'm really hoping no one calls social services or anything. <laughs> She's a very happy child. She has a very comfortable lifestyle. These are the five extremes that we are talking about here. Well, listen, that's been really great. Thanks so much for coming on today and uh, sharing those wonderful experiences. And I'm extremely jealous of at least four of them. <laughs> but not the girl speak. Well, you know, definitely not that experience, yeah, because you didn't see it either. But yeah, absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Well, that's almost all for this week, folks. I've just got time to say, check out Lucy's work on the website cruelty-free-optics.co.uk, a website dedicated to giving buyers the necessary information to choose the best optics for them based on animal welfare, conservation and environmental issues. Do join me again next week when my guest will be nature writer, broadcaster and wildlife television producer Stephen Moss. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>